right, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Um, welcome to our very last session for 2021, which is incredible. We just have a few days away from the new year. And, um, you know, it's always the, a great time to look back on what you've accomplished in, the, in this year. So I thought that I would just share um, some statistics and also um, try to convey, I think, the incredible um, amount of knowledge that we've covered, um, that Sheikh has covered and shared with us over this time. Because sometimes when you say, okay, now we've covered 70 surahs, which we have in Project Illumin, we will, Surah Al-Imran is our 70th, um, it's a little bit hard to imagine because that is a really big number. And some of, in some cases, um, you know, it wasn't just one session with, a, you know, a particular surah, but it was multiple. Um, so I thought I was reviewing our list today, and I'm going to just read it because I think it's stunning when you actually think about all of the surahs that we've covered here. I mean, certainly before we arrived in Ohio, before Project Illumin became a full-fledged immersion project with research fellows and, you know, a, a full hands-on um, effort, we covered eight surahs in, in California, and that started with um, Al-Hadid. And please forgive my Arabic pronunciation because I am not an Arabic speaker and have not studied um, the language. Um, Al-Hadid, Al-Jathia, Al-Rahman, Al-Sajda, Yasin, Al-Hijr, Al-Aqaf, and Al-Ankabut. So those were eight before we arrived in Ohio. Once we got here, we started on January 30th, and here are the surahs that we have covered. Al-Tur, Al-Furqan, Al-Mudathir, Qaf, Al-Muzammal, Saad, Al-Takwir, Fatir, Al-Inshikak, Al-Zumar, Abisa, Ghafir, Al-Najm, Taha, Al-Buruj, Al-Dukhan, Al-Qiyama, Maryam, Al-Tariq, Al-Shuara, Al-Qasas, Al-Kalam, Al-Naml, Al-Jinn, Al-Saba, Al-Mursalat, Al-Rad, Al-Isra, Lukman, Al-Kamar, Al-Zokrof, Al-Nal, Al-Dariyat, Al-Fusilat, Al-Mulk, Al-Safat, Al-Hakak, Al-Shura, Al-Naziyat, Al-Araf, Ibrahim, Al-Ma'arij, Al-Anbiya, Al-Ghashia, Al-Kaf, Al-Allah, Al-Mu'minun, Noah, Yunus, Khud, Yusuf, Al-Anam, Al-Naba, Al-Rum, Al-Infitar, Al-Waqiya, Al-Insan, Al-Mutafifin, Al-Tagabun, Al-Bakra, Al-Talak, and Al-Imran. That's amazing in one year, less than one year. And each one we've gone really deep in and we've understood thematically what we've, what this particular chapter was about. So multiply that times 70. I think when you actually read it, it's incredible what we've covered. Um, in terms of actual halakha sessions, even though we've covered 70 surahs, that was the equivalent of 87 halakhas here in Ohio, plus another eight in um, California, so 95 total halakhas just with Project Illumin. And then prior to that, um, in, from the start of 
the Usuli Institute in 2017, we had 33 other halakas. So altogether, we've done 128 halakas. Um, so that's an incredible number. So alhamdulillah, I, um, you know, I, I cannot, I, I think I speak for everyone in expressing just our endless gratitude for this journey with the Quran. Um, it's a little bit of a stunning number. It is an, an incredible amount of knowledge to take in. And I think we understand that, you know, this is um, knowledge that will be mined for many, many years to come. And we are not even finished yet, right? So we've covered 70 so far, and that leaves us with another 44 to go in, um, in phase two. <laughs> so we continue on. Um, but, you know, it's incredible to imagine that, um, you know, one person has been able to approach these surahs thematically and give us the gift of understanding the Quran in a way that I think no one else has. Um, and for me personally, and I know for others who, you know, we've had these discussions, that this has made the Quran come alive in a way that it never has before um, for, you know, anyone in their Muslim experience. Um, and there's just so much potential for helping Muslims reconnect with their faith in this very, you know, beautiful, intuitive, natural way. Um, you know, some of our discussions have been about how oftentimes when you read about what the Quran is supposed to say, sometimes you're sort of twisting and turning to make things make sense. But I think our experience collectively has been everything that you hear just resonates with your heart and soul. Like when you when you hear the truth, you, you understand. So reading through that list of every surah we've covered is absolutely stunning and amazing. And alhamdulillah. I'm so excited that we are here for our last, um, our Q&A um, with um, Surah Imran. It's really apropos that we finish this at the end of 2021. And so inshallah, next year on Saturday, we would start with um, inshallah a new surah and continue on our, our journey for the remainder. Um, so um, I have with me a, um, a number of questions and I also have some, um, some people here. So I think what we'll do as we have in, in the past um, is we'll start with in-person questions here. Um, if the interactive group could please um, send your questions through the chat, if you haven't already sent them to me, um, and then we will kind of go from there. So um, let me start by, um, well, first thanking you for joining us. And um, let us start with people present who'd like to go first. Okay. Hang on, I'm gonna just switch over. Oh, actually, no, that's okay. Um. In verse 84, it says, We believe in God and what has been sent down upon us and what was sent down upon Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Yaqub, and the tribes. Who who are the tribes? Um, Is it hot? Should I turn it over? Yeah. The the reason I'm checking is I just want to make sure that 
Yeah, it, it is, I, I, I assume that by um, the whose whose translation are you using? Um, it's the study Quran. Yeah, well, I assume that what they translated as the tribes is al asbat, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, um, and let me see uh, what does Muhammad Asa translate as from Russian to Greek. Ismail and Isaac are the descendants of that which was the descendants of Moses. So, and, and which, okay. Yeah, because the Muhammad Asad uh, translates it as descendants, um, which is closer to closer to what is um, the, the correct meaning. Um, uh, Al-Azbat was a, a literal, literal out of context meaning is, is the, tri the, the tribes from a certain lineage. So your Azbats are but What is meant by it were the tribe, the, the descendants of that line of prophets in the tribal descendants who, who were uh, the various Israelite tribes, there were, where there were a number of prophets sent that the Quran does not name and that the Bible does not name either. Uh, although the Bible sort of, well, anyway, the Bible has, depending on which Gospels you rely on, you know, alludes to a number of them that the Quran has not mentioned. But basically, they're the descendants of Yaqub and Musa, and Harun. So they're just the, the, the lineage of the prophets who, among them, were those who were called to prophecy. Okay, I actually wanna, I wanna take a step back. I actually intended to ask you this before we got, before we jumped into the Q&A. Um, can we, or can you tell us a little bit about your engagement with Surah Imran? Like what were, um, you know, where were you? What was going on? What were some of the questions that were really burning? What what was what captivated you and some of your aha moments, maybe? Um. Well, Al Omran, um, was among the earlier sore that I was studying. So there, it was actually in terms of engagement, it was not in the order presented. It was um, uh, so uh, I don't quite remember, but. I think it was before 
and and crossed over 9/11. So it must have been 2000, 2001. The thing about Al Umran is that, um, of course, I realize that this is the surah that has some critical. What I know from the tradition, from studying tafsir for so long and so on, is is uh, a a a, uh, a narrative that played a very important role in the development of the in Islamic intellectual legacy. The the ayat on the muhkam and mutashabih, the ayat on kuntum khaira ummah that you are the best nation. Um, and defining the role of that nation by Amr al-Maruf al-Munkar. But at the same time, the, in, when you read the tafsir, uh, uh, al is somewhat becomes somewhat confusing because um, you have a portion at the beginning of the surah that was supposed to be revealed in response to this delegation from uh, Najran, the Christian delegation, or that's what the sources said. And then the later part of the surah um, talks about hypocrites and the, I, I knew from the, of course, the tradition that it was talking about Uhud. And there didn't seem to be why, you know, there are burning questions of well, why does Allah choose this context to tell us about the muhkam and mutashabih in the Quran? Why the, why, is it, you know, it, is it true that the first half was revealed much later, like the end of the Medina period, and then the second half was revealed in the beginning of the Medina period? And just after, you know, before the Prophet died, he took the two halves and put them together and said, well, this is Al-Umran. Um, why was it known as Al-Umran? Why was it named as Al-Umran? Why did the early Muslims think that the mention of Al-Umran was so core and central to the surah um, and not Uhud? Not not the the second half that that talks about Uhud. I mean, it could they could have called it, it could have become known or named um, many different things, in because there there occurs within Al Umran a number of very unusual uh, words that could have become its. Um, and of course. Why does Allah choose the occasion of talking to a people who've done wrong, people who um, failed the Prophet ﷺ, at least many of them, and yet this is the surah that Allah chooses to center the role of the Ummah by saying that your role is Al-Amr Ma'ayuf Al-Munkar and so on. And why does Allah choose this surah to 
tell us to talk about while refuting a lot of what the Christians and Jews say and while warning us not to adopt their value systems, but at the same time telling us that they're not all the same. And why does Allah choose this surah, which again, in which people did something that to, to my mind is unforgivable. I mean, you're marching towards battle and one third of your army withdraws. Uh, you know, if, if, a if a friend or student betrays me, it's very hard to forgive. And here, you, you have all types. So you have people who withdrew, people who disobeyed the command, uh, people who uh, lost heart when they thought the prophet was dead. You would, you, out of the, the army that marched to, to Uhud, only 70 went out in the post-Uhud expedition to demonstrate strength. So there are all these burning questions, and um, I'm not, I wasn't sure how it all fit together. And um, the tafsir don't tell you anything that helps you make sense of how it all fits together. But again, as I said, the, the assumption is this is Allah's word and that Allah does not speak in vain. And that there, if Allah tells us that this surah is, is surah al-Amran, that there is, must be a reason. So and of course, you want to understand critical was to try to figure out what was, how was Al-Umran received close to the time of the Prophet, So in other words, how did the earliest Muslims, the ones who, who actually experienced the Prophet, uh, understand the message of Al-Umran? And these set of questions, you know, it, in in um, I have uh, pads or 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 defater where I often would write a whole series of questions without I unfortunately I didn't date them and they're they're all in a mess but you could see the very early questions and I would have a whole number of questions on on uh, any particular surah. And Al-Amran, these were the types of questions that I was noting down, and others. And then you, you have to methodically plan your, uh, plan your research. Because it's, it's not just having a question. Asking the right question is, is very important. But then after asking the right question, you must have a clear plan for tackling the question. What sources are you going to read? Um, are you going to need to acquire sources that you don't have? Are you going to need to use libraries? Uh, are you aware of manuscripts? Um, man Islamic manuscripts are in a mess because they're, they're held all over the world. And so if there is a particular manuscript that you need access to, where is it? And how are you going to put, get your hands on it? Um, you know, 
is it going to cost money? These are practical questions because, you know, um, research is expensive. And especially the type of research where where I'm, I'm working on the Quran, but I know that my work on the Quran is not going to get me tenure. So I have to publish scholarly articles on Islamic law that would work for my career while my work on the Quran was just done out of love and out of passion. It's not, it wasn't something that I thought I would be offering anyone. So, um, so you can't use research funds from the university. It has to be private research funds, meaning, you, you know, and, and as you know, being married to me that, you know, we weren't always in, in a position to be able to um, pay for a, a, a copy of a manuscript or a certain text or whatever. So these practical questions, but then as you are, and this is very important, and I keep underscoring this for all these young scholars who might want to follow in these footsteps, um, Every step of the way, every step of the way, you put in your hours of research. You know, some days I would spend as much as 14 hours of research and reading, but prayer and dhikr is critical to every step of the way. So even when you are, you put in 14 hours and you're very tired, uh, you're, the breaks between, you know, every two hours of work, 15 minutes of dhikr, uh, or you end, not or, but end, you know, you end the day with 45, 45 minutes or an hour and a half, depending of prayer and dhikr. Um, when it comes to the Quran, I didn't do this when I was researching uh, legal issues. Not necessarily, not to the same extent. But when it came it comes to the Quran, um, you are you are. It's a prayer. It's a it's a request. It's a it's a it's. Um, it's um, supplication. It's you're begging Allah to be with you, to facilitate your path, to help you understand. You're, you're saying all along, Allah, you know my intentions. If you know my intentions are pure, if you know that I'm not doing this for any earthly reason, then help me. If you, if you know my intentions are not pure, don't help me. Then you know, I, then I have no grounds to to ask you for anything. But if you know my intentions are pure, aid me. You know, facilitate my path to finding this source, finding this manuscript, and not just finding, but understanding. Because sometimes reading material, you are struggling to to decipher the meaning and 
especially when it comes to the riwayat, and then you get into the into the um, into the extremely complicated issue of rijal, because rijal the the transmitters of traditions, right? Because you have scholars of hadith like Zahabi that opine about the credibility of someone in the chain of the transmission. But when you collect all the opinions in all the different sources about this person, um, you then have to do, like, like any scholarly project, you are making your best efforts at trying to understand a moment in history that is past and you know that all opinions about the credibility of that rawi, that transmitter, are subjective. They're, they're not, you know, it's not a scientific uh, uh, objective process. And you're looking for collaboration. So you're always saying, well, you know, if um, this, I, I need collaborative evidence that would tell me that this point is valid or that this historical event. So I spent a lot of time on the Wafd Najran issue, which we are told occurs at the, at the end of the Medina period and that the, the entire first half of Surat Al-Amran was revealed in response to that visit. And vetting out that riwayah took a lot of work, a lot of time. I mean, if I published an article uh, on the historic historicity of the Wafd Najran incident, it, it would be a, a substantial piece of work. I mean, it would, it would have hundreds and hundreds of sites, and it would probably be published in a very prestigious Orientalist journal. Um, um, but that wasn't the, my, my point, as I, as I said. That wasn't the, 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 the purpose. Um, and so after, I mean, Al-Umran, it was a good year of use research interrupted by 9-11 and the mess of 9-11. Um, I returned to Al Omran again after the the um, uh, the trauma of 9/11 sort of uh, quieted down a bit. So I had a lot of outstanding questions. So around 2000 and um, eight, yeah, because it was before the Arab uh, Spring, 2008, I think. 2009, I returned to Al-Omran again. And it was around that time, so now we, we're talking about a year, maybe if you put all the time together, it might be a year and a half of research and prayer and all of that. It, it finally clicked. It, it, I was now confident and sure that that's why the surah is called Al Omran. That this is the story of Al Omran. This is the message of Al Omran. This is why Allah 
define this as a, a chapter. And that, of course, you know, I, I, again, I repeat, I exclude the possibility that Allah does things haphazardly or for no reason. My job as a researcher is to find out why. Um, and I think the proof is always in that once you hear the tafsir and you go back and you read the surah, I submit to you that it will make perfect sense, that it will actually even be obvious. You will, you, you will feel like, yeah, it's so obvious. How could it have been understood otherwise at any time? And that, that is, uh, that's truly just from Allah. That's, that's just a blessing and, you know, it's just something that, alhamdulillah, you know, any time we, we gain insight into Allah's word, Allah's book, you know the, the entire your entire life is worth a single insight into Allah's revelation. So you know the entire world, every, everything in it, it um, is a is a fair exchange for just learning something about Allah's book. If only Muslims would understand, if only Muslims would comprehend. Uh, do you remember the moment at which um, you saw the thematic unity? Because you've said that people in our tradition or scholars have always thought of this as two separate, um, two parts that put together, but. I mean, I don't, I don't remember like a single moment, but it, I, I remember um, that the more I wrote notes, the more I would read it just, and in over many, many nights, it started just gelling. And as I would, you know, I remember one night I decided to just, uh, I was praying um, Shafa and I just decided that I'm going to recite Al-Umran from beginning to end um, in one rakah. And so I, I was um, just, I, I, and I remember it as I was reciting it and the image of the hurt and the uh, disappointment about Uhud and the Prophet being injured and all the Muslims that lost their lives. And as I'm reciting, the image of the happiness of John uh, Yahya's parents when he's born and the happiness when Isa is born and then the, the sadness about their death and the two sad moments connected for me 
And and I remember while doing this prayer, this was in, you know, as I said, about 2006 or so, it, it became so clear and so obvious why this is Surat Al-Amran. The mulk is in Allah's hands and sadness and calamity and al-ghem bi-ghem is very much part of the narrative of victory. If you don't, there is no victory or possibility of victory if you don't learn from your losses and if you don't know how to constructively deal with your disappointments and failures. And, you know, yeah, as, I, as I'm, I remember, you know, I don't remember exactly what night it was, but I, I remember that in that raka, it was, I felt like the entire surah was just like someone sitting and telling you a story. You know, let, let me just, and, and it was, as you know, you know, listen to a lot of classical music and uh, before my hearing um, and it just made as pure a perfect sense just like a symphony when you get a symphony just like when you finally understand a symphonic performance and you understand what the composer is trying to say from a concerto or a symphony or you know and, and you just get it um, it just, it was obvious. It was clear. It was undeniable. And where was this in relationship to your engagement with Surah Baqarah? Because then you talked about the connection between Baqarah and Imran. Um, I, it was after Baqarah, but the, the, um, the, it became also clear that the lessons of Al-Baqarah where it sort of al-Baqarah gave Muslims a very strong sense of why they are that they 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 it, it deconstructed and challenged the idea of a chosen people and put Muslims and told Muslims very clearly about the, the the relationship between law and morality and gave them ample demonstrations of how people who just become about the law can fail ethically. And I think al-Baqarah, to put it in our language of our day, sort of put Muslims in a in a in a spiritual high. They they understood okay, we have to succeed where the Israelites failed. Um, we are carrying God's missions on this earth. Uhud was crushing. I mean, you, you, you ha you're coming from this high into this you know, very sobering fall. And Al-Amran comes and says, no, failure is very much part 
of the story of success. You have to learn how to deal with failure. You have to understand that sadness and disappointment is very much a part of the way that Allah uh, teaches you to hold on to Allah's rope. So, I mean, we'll get to this inshallah later, but the entire Quran, we, we've talked about chapter and chapter and chapter and chapter. But what we haven't done, which we'll do inshallah much later because this is another story, is that the entire Quran is a cohesive, coherent, again, I'll use this expression, symphonic message. The entire Quran from beginning to end is telling you a core, a, a core, more a central, uh, uh, um, indispensable moral message about how, uh, how, how and why and what to do in this life. You, Allah put you on this earth, okay, what comes next? What are you going to do? And the entire Quran is an answer to that. The entire Quran is basically saying, well, you know, Allah just didn't put you here and leave you to, you know, uh, um, uh, go around without direction and, and without purpose. So it, that is another part, is that as you, 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 as you, as you are studying each chapter, of course, and later on, because uh, Al-Amran came, was studied earlier than some of the surah that I presented here. So I studied Al-Amran before I studied a lot of the Meccan surah. But then I would go back and see the progression and see the cohesiveness in the entire message. Um, I mean, if if I knew or if I believed that the day would come where I would present this material, I, I would have probably talked about it more, but at the time, but I, I just, um, yeah, I don't know. It just wasn't part of my... Well, now that you've revealed that, <laughs> um, you know, I think everyone, well, I want to hear like, okay, I, I would love to hear more about that. And God forbid that, you know, we wouldn't be able to get to the point where you could tie it all together. God forbid, may God protect you and us and help us get to the end so we, we get there. Um, I guess maybe I can ask this question. So when you see this in the entire Quran as a, a cohesive message, um, and I know from what you've told me that other scholars have 
approached the Quran thematically as a whole, but not necessarily, not at all from this perspective where each chapter has, a, you know, a unique message that contributes to the whole. Um, what, what are your thoughts about why we lost, I guess, this cohesive message or have we lost it? Maybe we just, we know the overall message, but we don't necessarily feel as, you know, connected to it because we don't have all of the, the building blocks that led up to that. You know, I'm just, I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, we've come so far away from this understanding and, you know, or clearly the early Muslims understood, but maybe they didn't have the whole picture either. Um, how did we get to where, where we are, where we just don't even understand I mean, it is the relationship to, to, to the Quran, the entire message, the entire cohesive message of the Quran is what sparked the Islamic civilization. I mean, whether the, the, the fascinating thing is that you find that cohesive understanding of the Quran in the, in the moment, in the, the moment, momentums that took place, the energies that were unleashed in the Islamic civilization. You find it in the in the emergence of Islamic architecture. You find it in the emergence of Islamic art. You find it in the emergence of the types of music that uh, were generated in the Islamic civilization. You find it in the maqamat of the the, the scales of Islamic music. You find it in the various forms of literary forms that were inspired in the Islamic civilization. You find it in, in the common everyday expressions that the, the masha'Allah and the insha'Allah and subhanAllah that, that permeated Islamic civilization. You find it in, in, in all of that. So while while you know there is the institutional political um, history where people who hold who 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 negotiate hard power, um, but the impact of the entire message of the Quran on Islamic culture is massive and undeniable. And there are, and I, I, the, 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 the moral message of the Quran, the message of Surah Al-Baqarah, the message of Al-Umran, the message of Surah Al-Hadid, the message of Surah Al-Qasas, I believe that it was innately understood, intuitively understood by people who were much closer to the spirit of the Quran than the majority of us now. I mean, people like my mother or a lot of my teachers who, who when you looked at their character, they looked at their moral character. It was the moral character of the Quran. 
they 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 never lied they never cheated they were always very merciful they were always it, it, it was innate to them and and the quran was very much a part of their of you would see them all the time sitting reading the quran there you know they would much rather read the quran than watch a movie they were much rather read the Quran than play a game. They were the the that was their source, natural source of comfort. Till even yesterday, when I opening one of the boxes, I I found yet you know a, a, a little um, a little book of zikr with all these notes that my mother used to write and cut out and insert in the books that of zikr that she's looking. And the notes are all just these supplications. And it's, it, when you look at something like that, that was her comfort. That was her, it, it, now, these people, the existence of people like that is what upheld, preserved, and sustained the Islamic civilization for centuries. It is not the battles, the wars. It was that the the common pious Muslim who would give up two-thirds of their wealth to create a waqf that takes care of orphans. It was the common pious Muslim who, because of how moral they were, they spread Islam all over Indonesia and Malaysia just by their moral example. It was the common pious Muslim who would, when they want to entertain themselves, they would bring a, a, a uh, what, effectively a singer, who sings the poetry in praise of the prophet. And they would sit there and just listen to this poetry about how much, about loving the prophet and how the prophet is the most important thing in the universe. And that would be his entertainment. And then he would go back to his family. His heart is full of that. These were the people. It was the art, the architect or the, the who, when they wanted to express themselves art artistically, they, they they kept expressing themselves in forms of Quranic verses, in, in, in you know that in, in that their calligraphy that they would write on buildings and you know again and again and again. These were the people that actually sustained the Islamic civilization, and I submit to you that. The Quran was in their hearts. The Quran, the way we are studying it, was in their hearts. The difference is, is that as we Muslims became colonized, as Muslims were invaded economically, culturally, the, the very rapid social disintegration in, in in, in Muslim countries, the, the, the invasion of Muslim nationalism, which is jahiliyyah and, and a form of tribalism, that Islam, you know, Arnold Toynbee said that the, the disease of the West is nationalism. And it's a disease that if we 
pass on to Muslims, we'll, we, we will have destroyed their civilization forever. The reason someone like me has to do all this work is because of the in, innate, intuitive, the loss of the innate and intuitive proximity to the Quran. In many ways, the reason I have to do this work is because we become so alienated. The, the, the rise, we, we can't ignore the rise of the Wahhabi movement. We can't ignore the rise of agents of colonialism. We can't ignore the fact that you know the Muslim psyche has become either defines itself by basically doing exactly what Al Amran warned us against, uh, um, being to take those who absolutely despise Islam uh, as close affiliates and uh, trustees. I mean, when when this guy who the Emirati that was sent to space and went into space, and the first thing he does in space is to raise the Israeli flag. Right? When the Emirat changes the weekend to Sunday and Saturday and say, okay, we don't care about Juma anymore. And yet Emirat funds so many Islamic institutions and defines their Islam. Do you think these people are going to understand the Quran the way my mother or my grandmother or my, my, or my great-grandmother or great-grandfather understood the Quran or the way that Sheikh Ghazali understood the Quran or the way Sheikh Adil Aid understood the Quran? No, they're not. They're, do you think someone who, you know, they're, they're, they're so excited in Saudi Arabia because they're, they get to watch Mariah, Mariah Carey perform in Riyadh and go to a halal bar, and that's that, that, That's what psychs them. Do you think they're going to have any type of relationship with the Quran? The Quran is alien to them. The Quran is a foreign book. It doesn't speak to them anymore. So someone like me, what I'm actually doing is I am just creating, I'm building a bridge. It's like an engineer that comes to construct a bridge after the bridge had been destroyed. If the bridge had not been destroyed, all of this would be innate. It would be in our heart, in our soul. Same thing, like the love of the Prophet When I grew up, I knew tons of people. It was intuitive to them. They loved the Prophet ﷺ. A lot of their tasbih would just be salah and taslim ala Rasulullah. The burda, the poem that praises the Prophet, was in their hearts and in their soul. They would have listened to it a million times in their day. We've reached now a day and age where there are so many Muslims who don't even know why should we love the Prophet. Why do we say salatu wassalam ala nabi Follow the sunnah of the Prophet means we imitate, but why? 
because we want to go Jannah, that's it. The, 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 the romantic connection with the Prophet had been severed. We don't love the Prophet. A lot of Muslims now come and say, you know, can you tell me, I heard this story about the, you know, all stories of doubt and maligning. So what would someone like me come to do in, in under these circumstances? They would have to go and methodically research the seerah to try to restore the love of the prophet. It's the same thing. My grand, my mother, may Allah bless her soul, I've never sat, seen her sit uh, reading a, a book of tradition, any of the old, you know, medieval books of tradition, but she intuitively and innately loved the prophet. Loved the prophet. I mean, loved him was, an, was a passion. When I look at so many Muslims today, you know, they think loving the Prophet is about studying, oh, look how, you know, scared he was in Ghar Hira, sitting with Abu Bakr, and that's not. These, these stories where they don't, They don't, um, you can't find or, 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 or pretend that there is an emotional connection that doesn't exist. But what should a scholar do when they find that we've reached this point? So, What I submit to people, and what I keep underscoring this and emphasizing, is that go back to all the all the tafsir we've done on the Quran. And I, my claim is, what I am confident of, is that while I am providing a a a. I'm working through the meanings of these sores. I believe that the meanings of these sores were in the heart of generations of Muslims. It was obvious. It was, you know, they might have not understood, you know, the connection between the first half of Al-Amran and the second half of Al-Amran. But at, the, at its, its core, they understood what it means to be you are the best ummah that was sent to the world or they had an innate understanding of at a cultural level and that's what allowed Muslim civilization to exist as a serious cultural and social phenomena. I mean, subhanAllah, while Wahhabi Islam came at a point 
and it stripped the cultural richness of Islam and turned Islam into the legalism that Surah Al-Baqarah refuted. You find the heart of the Quran in the qawali of uh, the Sufi qawali of someone like Nusrat uh, Ali Khan. That was an, an innate expression of the ecstasy of what the Quran represented in their hearts. Alhamdulillah. Do you want to? Do you need to take a break, or should we keep going? Keep going. Yeah. Okay. Did you, I was going to ask Shayan, but did you guys have a question? Okay. Do you want to ask another question? Um, in, in the latter part of the surah, when you talked about uh, when the when the Quran talks about um, saying warning the the Muslims against resentment and saying you know go forgive them and and consult with them, I wondered about what exactly was do do we have any understanding of what the shura that the Prophet employed what it was specifically. I mean, was it a, a democratic process where everyone's voice had equal weight? Was it that there was a collective voting system? Or, you know, was it that he, he consulted, he took opinions, but ultimately decided himself? And also, because the, I have a hard time believing that the every Muslim's opinion was equal to a Muslim like Abu Bakr. So wh how? No, it was not a formalized system, but, and, and that's an, the, the I mean, it was not a formalized, this is a, a, a prophet um, uh, in, in, um, the formalized system, the, the, the constitution of the Medina was a, a formal document that outlined formal rights and duties. We know that there was no shura when it came to a matter of revelation. Any matter that the Prophet received revelation on, th there was no tashawar. But we also know that in example after example after example, when matters did not involve revelation, that the Prophet would often follow the opinion of uh, either people who had specialized knowledge or people or or simply the the general consensus however that he assessed that general consensus and in his time the very fact that he was able to hold on to hold on to this entire community 
without uh, splinters and people, you know, groups breaking off, um, was the material proof of inclusion. And it was clear, when you study the, the polemics of the very first, um, um, the, the very first debates about governance after the death of the Prophet people were raising the idea of shura. Shura became sort of like a, a like a, um, a, a, um, a buzzword, uh, and what they meant by it is inclusion. Although we don't have any clear um, evidence as to how they wanted to structure that inclusion, so we know that after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, there was an idea that well, okay, maybe what shura should be is that we get the the individuals who are most representative of the consent of the people and put them in what they called a shura council and these individuals would govern with the ruler because very little was committed to writing how exactly that worked administratively is very difficult to retrieve historically if not impossible because whatever it took them for a long time and most of what was written was written centuries after the fact describing events that happened much earlier and by then there were sectarian uh, divisions that often played a role in in biasing the way people are telling history and so whatever institutional structures that were developed in the very first years of the Khalifa al-Rashidun as the, the Sunnis called them uh, the rightly guided it was not committed to writing but the idea of Shura as a as a principle of participation and anti-despotism was undeniable. And it is significant that why after the first four Sunni Muslims decide that, okay, the Khilafah has ended, the Khilafah al-Rashida. Al-Rashida means rightly guided. You know, the, 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 the guided Khilafah has ended and now it became mulk. And the answer that you get in all the sources is because shura has been uh, wasted. There was no more shura. And did that mean that the khulafa, uh, the Amawad khulafa or the, uh, or the Abbasid khulafa didn't consult? Of course they consulted. But that's not what they meant by shura. What they meant by shura is a form of government that makes people feel included and that makes people feel that 
what governs is their consent. So they often say that the, or at least that's the Sunni telling of history, is that during the first four khulafa, the bay'ah represented the actual consent of people. While after the first four, after Khilafat Ali, that the bay'ah no longer represented the actual consent of people. So the ideas are clearly there. But to try to find anything like a representative government, it's like those people who try to find in Greek institutions of government a form of liberal democracy. Well, it didn't exist. Greeks had a very specific definition of citizenship, a very narrow definition of who whose opinion counts and in in what way and so to try to impose the the institutional structures of democracy that comes after human beings learn a great deal about politics and about institutions of governance and about how the corruption of powers uh, on something that existed much earlier, it, it's, it's absurd. It's like, you know, those who try to, to, to argue that, uh, it's, it's like trying to find proof of people driving a car in ancient civilization. The fact that people were, you know, had things driven on wheels doesn't mean that they were, they had anything like a car. And same thing with, with the whole notion of democracy. It was an innate sense of our consent should matter when you rule us with our consent, it's different than if you don't rule us with our, without, if you rule us without our consent. And there's a difference between governance that is participatory and governance without participation participation and that those that you claim represent us should actually represent us these ideas it clearly existed but the way they expressed them was within the paradigms of their day and age and that's what a lot of you know to, you can't twist the arm of history to get the, the historically anchored mind, a mind that thinks within the parameters of its time and age to fit within the way that the mind thinks centuries later. I mean, the, even the way that we understood the, the notion of rights or duties, or the way that we understood the per idea of personhood, is it, radically different. The way that we, you, you thought about yourself as, and what you as a human being might be entitled or have a right to. Um, so I'll give you 
just just so because people are just uh, I'll give you just a, 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 a simple example when I was young I watched I was watching laborers workers there's in in Egypt building something and they're they're working barefoot and then I saw a guy they lifted his feet up in on the uh, uh, up in the air and they took a stick and they were beating his feet so hard it's coming down literally beating his feet and there were blood everywhere and but the guy wasn't screaming and and then when the when the beating was done he got up and they wrapped his bleeding foot and went off, continued working. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what, what, what did this guy do to deserve this beating? And why wasn't he screaming? And why was it like he was just joking with the people who just beat him afterwards? What the heck was going on? So I learned that these guys always work barefoot. They, they can't stand the idea of working with shoes. That's how they've been doing things forever. And that this guy stepped on a nail. And the nail entered his foot. And the way they deal with it is that they take out the nail, then they beat the foot to make it bleed out. And that, that was very common and, and normal for them. And he was, when I was like expressing surprise at the, well, don't you need to go to a hospital? He looked at me like I'm crazy. Like, you know, what are you talking about? What doctors, what hospital, you know, why were you? Now, This is a thoroughly contextually embedded human being, as you are thoroughly contextually embedded. The idea of someone taking a stick and beating you on your feet and make and, and blood gushing out everywhere it has a very different impact on you and me than this fellow. When it, human beings are that when we talk about the epistemology of the age, that's not a small thing. Our consciousness, our perception of who we are, even our perception as to our relationship to our body. And whether, for instance, someone has any claims or uh, uh, um, upon our body, it is often defined by our consciousness and uh, and the way our consciousness is shaped within a particular context or not. So I can tell you that among, you know, my um, my um, uh, ancestors or my not ancestors, but my you know the older generation my relatives who are older generations 
many of the people that the the the, the, the i the idea of marital rape for instance that offends me to the core with my contemporary consciousness to them I remember a, a, a conversation that got very heated with some of my aunts and basically it's you know they were offended that the state would have anything to say about what happens between husband and wife in their bedroom. And they were offended by the idea that I want to tell them what is right and wrong between husband and wife in a bedroom. It's a very different psychological framework. And you can't just, you know, you, 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 studying and understanding history is the more mature an intellect the more able it is to understand the complexities of historical context, the more simple-minded and ill-educated an intellect, the more it, it thinks that it, its particular historical moment is generalized, can be generalized across the, the, the board. Two-parter. The first part is a clarification on verse seven in terms of the way that it reads, um, it, it, where it talks about the tetweed and it talks about uh, none, none but Allah know its tetweed. Pause. What rasakum fil and it continues. Yeah. So, like typically, the way that we read it and, and it's translated is it, it ends period almost. وَمَا يَعْلَمُونَ تَأْوِيلُهُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ period وَالْرَسَقُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ يَقُولُونَ آمَنَّا etc. But is is it also viable to say مَا يَعْلَمُونَ تَأْوِيلُهُ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَالْرَسَقُونَ فِي الْعِلْمِ is it is it um, is there that possibility that those with this criteria that you mentioned regarding the Prophet's hadith and you know what makes for somebody who is you know and that's the first part uh, the second part is uh, unfortunately not as coherent of a question as I would like but um, when studying in the way that you proposed that you should study the surah you mentioned um, certain parts that set up the rest of the surah um, three things in particular verse 7 which is the ayah uh, the ayah and mutashabihat the ayah on ayah 13 which talks about the fiatain the two parties uh, which meet in battle etc etc and and in a uh, other context of the you know the family of al-imran um, and examples of the christians and how there is a difference between the, the vast majority of them and the etc etc um, and uh, while grappling with these two um, I kept thinking back to the moment at Uhud in which you you mentioned the different you know the two or three different parties of individuals 
first party of individuals um, were those who had already achieved a great understanding of the first, all of the suwara that came in Mecca, uh, in terms of the muhkamat. But the sha'an here is, or the, the, the greater situation that you set is, now you have a greater number of Muslims in Medina who are not as perhaps well-versed with um, the Qur'an in, in its muhkam sense. So I'm asking that, is this a reason why there is a return here to understanding really, okay, look, I know that you may have missed out on this earlier section. You need to start learning about what is the muhkam. And so here we are, even amongst the people who you think are misguided, which are the Christians. Those who have understood the muhkam are the ones who their good deeds will be accepted. Focus on these. And the example of those who started to go astray and didn't quite know, it, were lost and were affected by the fact that, you know, um, uh, some of the ranks broke off and went back home. Had they been grounded in the muhkam, they would not feel the need to have their heart waver and, and try to figure out whether they should stay or whether they should leave or not. So I guess a bit of the naughty question is um, the relationship between the two parties and those who fail to understand the muhkam versus the mutashabah. That if you are not grounded in the muhkam, um, which could be a great number of people, the way that the Christians are, you know, a great number of people, but some of them have understood the muhkam, that you are in fact, unfortunately, I, I don't know how else to say it, on the wrong side, and you are contributing to fighting the party of Allah who is trying to hold on to the muhkam really hard. Okay, well, the, the first question about Rasukhuna um, fil Ilm, there is um, so okay. So this is in, um, in verse 7 that. Okay, so if you look at the translation, just so we're all on the same page, um, so it says that there are the muhkam and the mutashabih, um, and the the mahkam is the essence, the mother of the book, and then while the others are mutashabih or allegorical or whatnot. Now it says, now those whose hearts are given to swerving from the truth go after that part of the divine rich which, which have been expressed in mutashabih or the mutashabih, seeking out uh, confusion and seeking um, to arrive at its meaning in an arbitrary manner. But then non-save God knows its meaning, period, stop. Then those who are, but, and then says, Muhammad Asad translated that, hence those who are deeply rooted in knowledge say we believe in it. The whole of the divine writ is from our sustainer. Albeit none takes this to heart, save those who are endowed with insight. So the, the question that, uh, it, it's about this, it says that the mutashabih, none knows its real meaning except God. And 
normally it's read with period and then it starts talking about they say or they the those who are who are embedded in knowledge or those who are rooted in knowledge uh, which we've talked about they say we know it's all from Allah and so on and so forth there is actually a, a, in the tafsir there is a debate a grammatical debate about um, uh, whether it's saying or whether it can be read as saying that when it comes to the mutashabih only Allah knows what the mutashabih means and also the people who are rooted in knowledge also know what the mutashabih means um, or, or whether you can read it this way or not and it's a grammatical debate because it has to do with the grammatical structure of the sentence um, I think that the the grammar and the flow of these ayat or this the, 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 the this narration it's saying that the mutashabih if you will, the, 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 the more contextual, complex issues. The issues that people can disagree about. They, they can, they, the, the muhkam are these core foundational principles, like, you know, as we said, the, the foundational principle of that you have an obligation to al-amr ma'ruf al-munkar. That, that's a, a foundational principle. Now, there are a lot of Quranic references, um, even within the Quranic narrative about the Battle of Uhud, for instance. Uh, you know, the, and, and this used to, of course, be bigger issues than they are now, but who exactly were among the Munafiqun? Whether really the 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 there are two factions that were really going to withdraw from battle and follow Abdullah ibn Ubay, or whether it they weren't really serious, uh, you know these are all issues that you actually find a lot of debate about in the in the in the in the tafsir, um, whether the the people that gave the shura that the prophet leave medina were ultimately wrong whether that opinion was ultimately wrong or whether it was right and it's just because some people abandoned their positions that's why the battle went wrong because if if these people hadn't abandoned their positions on the mountain they would have probably won the battle um so in fact the the advice wasn't wrong it wasn't the fact that they went out and fought because Muslims went out and fought many battles after that outside of Medina and they won these battles. Uh, so these are all issues to be, you know, that people debate with various conclusions and 
various arguments that, or various lessons that they extract from that. I think that the point about al-rasikhuna fil-ilm, so if you look at the wal-rasikhuna fil-ilm, yaquluna amanna bihi kullun min indi rabbina, that وما يذكر إلا أولي الألباب that the point is that الراسخون في العلم those who are truly knowledgeable what is what is it that the truly knowledgeable what conclusion did the truly knowledgeable reach? Well, the truly knowledgeable understand that there are core principles that are umul kitab, and the truly knowledgeable do not fool around with the core principles. So the truly knowledgeable don't come in and say, Oh, well, yeah, but, you know, is shura really important? Or, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, is, you know, maybe al-amr al-ma'roof and al-munkar is, you know, they start watering down issues. But the truly knowledgeable also are fair-minded enough to accept plausible, Differences of opinion on issues of mutashabih. In other words, they respect differences of opinion because you need to be knowledgeable, to be tolerant of, of differences of opinion on matters that bear divergent interpretations, divergent opinions, and to know the difference between what you can disagree on and what you cannot disagree on. And this is actually, Zamakshari, if I remember correctly, says that. He, he, he says that the mark of al-rasikhuna fil-ilm and he says this about uh, all the, the great founders of uh, Islamic law, Jafar Sadiq and uh, Shafi'i and Imam Malik, is that they describes them and Rasul Khunafram that they knew where to say, I don't know, to refrain from giving it. And they, they weren't threatened by the the they believe their opinion is right, but they accepted the possibility that the opinion of the other is right and they could be wrong. And that's Rusukh Filan. And for me, when I understood the the, the uh, this way, it it then the entire momentum of the Islamic civilization made sense. Because you want to understand what in the Quran made Muslims reach the idea that Sharia could have many different interpretations that are equally legitimate. 
And before sectarianism, before the, the, the crazy Shia-Sunni divide came in about a highly emotional issue, it was clear that Muslims accepted the opinions of Ja'far al-Sadiq as legitimate, Imam Malik as legitimate, Abu Hanif as legitimate, Al-Awza'i as legitimate, Imam Layth as legitimate, the, all, all the various opinions are legitimate. Now, what, what in the Quran taught them this ethic? And the answer is right there. The intuitively, I'm telling you, the tafsir that we are discovering there, discovering now, was intuitively in the hearts of the early Muslims. They understood this book in a way that because they were not colonized, because they were not corrupted by you know all the 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 ways that alienate us from the the revelation and Allah's book and make Allah's book so alien to us. It was in their hearts and understood that the mark of a true scholar is to say it's not just all about me. Because when they were doing this, the, the norm, the norm in their day and age was zero tolerance towards the opinion of the other. The idea of tolerating the opinion of the other is, was, was, came much centuries later. And normally we say it came after you know, all the bloodshed, in, because Europe, very Eurocentric history, says that tolerance was an idea that developed in the 17th and 18th century after you know, Europe learned from all the blood that intolerance is a very costly thing. And no one pays attention to the, the dynamics of tolerance that took place in Islamic civilization. You know, when, when, when um, Europeans tell Islamic history, they focus on the battles and the, like I, I was just reading a book recently. This is just a couple of days ago. Some guy who is educated, of course, in, in the West, he wrote a book in Arabic on the bloody end of so many of Muslim rulers. And so the entire book basically has this, is an argument that the impression you get from the book is that basically Muslim history was about rulers killing each other. You know, how, how it's full, it's blood soaked. And, but what is completely missing from his book and the book of so many historians that write Muslim history for Muslims is what happened at the, what, what dynamics took place that would allow a university to survive for 500 years without being sacked or burned down. That's material history. 
That's what actually matters. A, a ruler can kill another ruler in a palace. But what allowed for a waqf to exist for 600 years uninterrupted? What allowed for a court, a courtroom, to have a series of judges replace one another for 800 years? That's actually the material history. That's the history that tells you how the text of the Quran was understood. Not what the Hashashun were doing or what the assassins were doing or what the you know the, the battle between Sunnis and Shia and in, in, in this occasion, because a battle takes place in one day. But how about the, the other days of the year? What happens in the, the, all these days? What happens to the common person? who got married, raised children, belonged to a guild, a professional guild, lived out their life. And, and, and you can tell much more about Islamic history from studying the travels, the travel, the, commer- the travels in, in the pursuit of commerce within the Islamic civilization than from all the stories of battles between Muslims. Because the fact that people could travel to buy and sell, and these trade routes existed for centuries, uninterrupted, tells you much more about the actual norms and values. The fact that people could travel to Hajj, or people could travel for Talab al-Ilm. So you read that a certain scholar, you know, over 20 years, he was traveling from one location to another location to another location in pursuit of knowledge. Well, you had to have a stable infrastructure for that to happen. It's not the idea we have of our history as wars and battles, and it's completely an Orientalist project. Because for someone to pursue knowledge for 20 years and to accumulate a library and to leave a whole bunch of letters and writings and or even love stories love stories like the love stories told in Tolkien Hamama can tell you much more about the actual civilization than the stories of murders and assassinations and battles and executions uh, of, that happens in, in the palace. Oh, oh, yeah. So that, that's it. So that's the uh, The the second question. Um, um, what? Uh, to and how that oh, oh oh yeah the the, the parties um uh, the, the the parties that were described in the beginning of Ali Omran that there are you know the, the two groups um if I understood the question is that there are in Ali Amran, it, the, the beginning, Allah posits the, the, the image of these two parties, a party of God and the other party. And it is certainly the case. Oh, now I remember. Yeah. Um, 
certainly those who had converted in Mecca and spent 10 years in the trials and tribulations of Mecca and then and migrated with the Prophet to Medina, definitely the muhkam was in their hearts. And definitely with Al-Umran, we enter a stage where there are larger numbers of people converting to Islam with varied motives. And, and that's really one of the, the critical things, is that there are people who are converting because they're very sincere and sacrificing a great deal to accommodate the muhajirun and to share so much with the muhajirun and to embrace wholeheartedly this new uh, faith and new project and new everything. But we also know that there were people in Medina who um, resisted converting until it became obvious that you're not going to, that you, they, you sort of needed to go along with the trend for a variety of reasons. And so the, their conversion was not sincere. And there were people who converted and might have been sincere, but their 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 hadith ahd with Islam, their 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 knowledge of Islam is uh, the the reason. Part of the reason you're right is that the muhkam and mutashabih revelation comes at this point to tell people, listen. There's a core that all of you need, and if you haven't caught up, you need to catch up. Yes. But I think also part of the reason for the Mahkam al Mutshabih revelation in Ali Umran is that notice that, let's say, al Mutashabih is what creates confusion and divergence of opinions, right? Well, among the things, the main causes of the shabu in life is calamity and loss and failure. That's when people start getting confused. It's when they fail. It's as long as you are succeeding, the risk is that you become arrogant, confused because of your arrogance. But failure is a very different type of confusion. And that is, it's, it's remarkable because Allah comes and, and, and it says, you know, it's as if Allah is saying, in the midst of being tried with the challenges of life, this is the time where you need, really need to hold on You really need to hold on to Allah's rope. The, the, uh, and what is Allah's rope? It is the muhkam. It is the core of everything. And, and even when we look, this is a different topic, but I believe that they're part of the reason that Allah allowed the fitna to exist after the death of the Prophet and the infighting is to to teach Muslims for the rest of history 
how very well-intended people, uh, not obviously not everyone was well-intended, but some key individuals who were well-intended, can it is easy if they are not thoroughly disciplined to become confused and let go of Allah's rope. And I completely adhere to the to, to the belief that all of those who said that the that the very reason of Al Fitna Kubra was to to teach us, to teach generations of Muslims to come immoral lesson that unfortunately so many of us didn't learn because we took Al-Fitna Kubra to be about a sectarian division rather than a moral lesson about how we can avoid exactly what happened and by, by becoming unified around core constitutional moral principles. You know, constitutional in the literal sense, not in the modern sense. Constitutional meaning core principles that define us and upon which we cannot splinter. Um, and, you know, so instead we started, you know, getting into the, 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 these issues of um, imam and CS and... Uh, which always splinters people. But, so anyway, but, so yes, you're, that is the, the, the Muhkam and Mutashabih at this point played a critical role and especially as we will see in later as the Quran, uh, the other Medinian revelation, there is a, a very serious challenge because the Quran starts dealing with laws at, at many different levels after Al-Umran and it was very easy for people to lose sight of the what what is the whole point of a Muslim Ummah that testifies for Allah. That, as, as we will see, that it is, it, you know, falling in the trap of what the Israelites did and losing sight of the moral purpose um, and the ethical role is a very high risk. So it, it, it came as a reminder precisely at the right time where it needed to be. Do you want to take a break? Quick break? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of questions because we the people here yeah, dominated I think we everything. Should, I think we should take a quick break and then come back and we'll jump into the interactive group questions. Okay. okay. Is that okay? If you guys go ahead and send through any questions you have on the interactive chat, if you haven't already sent them to me. We're going to take we'll, a five-minute we'll break. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and jump into those questions. Okay. So when I come, we're back. Um, so I'm going to jump into some of the questions that were sent to me. Um, the first one, I'm not sure if you actually, I, I think you already sort of alluded to this, but I'm just going to read it again anyway. Um, why does Allah establish the concepts of 
Mukama and Mutashabiha in Al-Imran as opposed to any other surah in the Quran. Although you demonstrated their function and purpose for Al-Imran, it seems that those concepts are equally applicable and relevant to many surahs. Uh, I mean, why Al-Imran? Uh, I think because of the... the um, because of the experience of loss and, and and defeat and the the implications of that um, put it put 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 it differently it is fair to say that the entire revelation in Mecca was muhkam Mecca laid down the moral foundation, the ethical core of um, the, of the entire Islamic message. And then we get to Medina, Baqara challenged, now came a, a new phase, and the core phase in Baqara is to challenge the concept of a chosen people and to explain what really defines Allah's support for a people. Um, and with Ali Omran, while Surah Al-Baqarah does have some legislation, but it is not extensive. As we will see with Ali Omran, it, it's the defining moment with the defeat and the beginning of various Quranic legislation. And the, it's sort of if you internalize the message of the Quran from the Mecca period and the message of the Quran in Surah Al-Baqarah, then you would be able to approach the Quranic laws and legislations that will follow in the Medina period after Al-Amran um, in an ethical way, in a, in, a, in a way that, in fact, honors God's law. Um, you know, there, there's, um, there is a lot of speculation or, you know, scholars are, are, are always search why, how did the concept of Sharia as a way for God's way as a a a a, uh, a way of <coughs> moral goodness start and where where did it of course Sharia itself is, the word Sharia is mentioned in the Quran several times but how did the 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 whole institutional intellectual enterprise of Sharia begin? And what you realize, especially when you uh, uh, 
focus on the the roots of the Sharia tradition is sort of the philosophical moral foundations and the constant after that the constant struggle uh, between Sharia as an instrumentality of justice intention or in constant negotiations with the philosophical and moral foundations of justice. And in many ways, the story of Sharia itself bears out the struggle between the muhkam and mutashabih. Um, although Muslims don't normally look at it this way, but that, that is the, the reality. And it is around post Ali Umran, especially from an Islamic perspective, is birth is the birth of the Sharia tradition. Um, so that's also part of the answer. I think this is related to this question, so I'm going to ask this one. Um, given your interpretation of Muqam and Mutashabi, um, there seems little room for entertaining any process of abrogation. Why was it so widely accepted if given the predominant intuitive understanding um, the Quran as a contextual discourse? Well, first, let's remember that I'm, I'm not the only one that doesn't accept abrogation of the Quran, there, and, and not just modern scholars. There um, there are, it's a minority view, but nevertheless, it was always a consistent and, and ex persistent existing school of thought in Islamic tradition that rejected the idea of abrogation. Um, as to why abrogation became so widely accepted, um, In, in my view, jurists are, were confronted by what they perceived as uh, tensions between, in the text. I mean, so in many ways, and this is precisely what Allah is describing as mutashabih, you know, you, you, you uh, you see the, the Quran seems to be saying X about a certain situation and later on what they thought was the same situation, now it's saying Y. And abrogation, the concept of abrogation was not an Islamic invention. It was an already existing um, idea in Near Eastern legal systems at the time that I mean, the, the, typically uh, whether a new decree or a, a new ordinance by um, the emperor, by a king, by whoever the uh, or uh, even in the case of the, the Roman law example, Justinian's Code, 
And Justinian's code quite explicitly abrogates all the other jurisprudence that existed pre-Justinian code. And this was a very big issue in, in Roman law and a, and a very complicated issue because Roman law uh, had a great deal of provincial diversity pre-Justinian code. And then Justinian comes and basically says, I'm going to now pass a code that abrogates everything before it. However, it also said that it abrogates in the case of inconsistency. But pre-Justinian law is allowed to exist if there is no inconsistency. So we know that whether we're talking about Sassanid law or we are talking about Lechmed law or we are talking about the uh, Byzantine law, uh, Roman law effectively, um, or we are talking about Jewish law. Although Jewish law was uh, not as developed at that time because uh, Jewish law really, the Jewish legal theory has a spurt of development post-Islamic period. But even Jewish law in the pre-Islamic period also had the idea that some, a later law abrogates a, an earlier law. And for the legal mind, it's a, it's a, it's a very convenient solution, especially in the context of contentious litigation. So you, you're presented before a judge, and one of the most often resorted to arguments is to tell a judge, well, I should win because the law has changed and the, the, what you think is the law is no longer the law. Now it, there's a new rule in effect. Um, and so it's not at all surprising that it was resorted to, but where it became problematic is that when it extended from the realm of uh, institutional instrumental law to theology, and where theologians themselves started accepting it. So, I mean, take for example um, the issue of uh, the jizya. The jizya was, as an instrumentality, as as a as a as a technical legal procedure. It was well known before Islam. It was paid, the jizya was paid by Arab tribes to the Persian Empire. It was paid by Arab tribes to the Byzantine Empire. Centuries before Islam, the strong collected jizya from the weak. And, and the Islamic innovation with the jizya 
is not the jizya itself. Islam didn't invent the jizya. The Islamic innovation was the jizya is that it made it a more ethical institution. So here we know the stories of Omar ibn Khattab uh, and stories of uh, uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib where they come and they say, okay, well, the the jizya is a contract. You pay us, we protect you. If we can't protect you, then we're going to return the money. That's the ethical innovation that was introduced by Islam. That's it. The, the idea of we can't protect you, so we're going to return the money was unheard of. No one has done it before. And when it was done, it was shocking. And we have actually a, 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 a very interesting historical... Um, I wish I, I, I... Maybe one day, you know, it would be an excellent article to publish on. Uh, where in Imam al-Awza'i there is a Christian group at the outskirts, the, who, a Christian community that lived um, between the, where, the Islamic Empire and Byzantium. And the Christian community is, is scared of the Byzantians because of their, their sect of Christianity is a sect that the Byzantians don't accept. And they knew that the Byzantians, if they fall under Byzantine authority, they would be uh, persecuted. So they sent a delegation to the Khalifa. I don't remember which Khalifa it was at the time. But anyway, the Amawad Khalifa and the delegation was that they're asking to pay the jizya in return for protection of the, the Muslim empire. And the Khalifa calls a council and returns to the delegation and says, we're very sorry, we're not going to accept the jizya from you because we can't protect you. Whatever the considerations were that we are not going to be able to protect you, so we're not going to accept your jizya. And they were extremely distraught. So, and they went to Imam al-Awza'i, who was very influential at the time, and implored him to talk to the Khalifa. And Imam al-Awza'i wrote a letter that survived. We have a copy of that letter, where he argues to the Khalifa, please take the jizya from them and protect them. Khalifa said no. If a short while later, these Christians are invaded by the Byzantine army and enslaved. So they're taken captive and sold into slavery. Some of the most remarkable correspondence, and that's what I wish I, I had published an article on, are the letters written by Imam al-Awza'i imploring, begging the Khalifa to ransom them, to, to buy their freedom, saying, we failed them when we refused to take the jizya. 
and arguing that that was haram, that we've committed an ethical failure when we refuse to take the jizya from them. So now that they've been taken captive, we owe them to ransom them. Now, what were the motivations of Imam al-Awza'i? That's a, a complicated question and uh, one that would just uh, um, be a, a wonderful subject of research. But the letters are amazing, are remarkable. Now, why was I giving the example of jizya? Now, notice that the institution of jizya itself um, as an instrumentality of law, um, what that is an example of something that bears a great deal of complexity and differences of opinion as to when, how, where, why, all of that. Later on, the Muslims of Andalusia, they're the ones that paid the jizya to Christians for a very long time, as we know, and the complexities of the legality of that as well. But when the jizya enters into theology, where you start saying, well, theologically, the jizya is an institution of sigar, meaning an institution of humiliation. And so theologically, we are not taking the jizya to protect these people, we are taking the jizya to humiliate these people. Here is sort of a, a transformation from legal practices into theological creed. And there are, again, there are always reasons why this happens. There are reasons why the interpretation of jizya, be, if influenced theological creed in this fashion. Um, but, you know, this is... Um, Going back to the, oh, the going back to the issue of abrogation, so I don't forget. Um, now, when the jizya has an impact into theological creed, theologians, as opposed to just lawyers, theologians then thought, well, for jizya to have that theological meaning, we need to declare all these ayat in the Quran that talk about al-kitab, some of them being a people who worship and do good and, and that the reward is with Allah must be abrogated. Because we can't reconcile between the meaning of jizya as a form of humiliation and these ayat. Was it necessary? Was it inevitable? Was it, you know, uh, no. Was it even, you can make an argument that it's not even a compelling, a very compelling reason to to say, even if you're going to interpret it, interpret jizya as a form of humiliation, did you need to say that it abrogated these earlier ayat? 
same thing with Ayat al-Saif. You know, did you need to say that Ayat al-Saif abrogated everything before it? That, uh, that appears inconsistent to you with Ayat al-Saif? Abrogation was, I mean, in my view, Allah Alam, but in my view, abrogation is the instrumentality of the lazy. It, it's a cop-out. If you don't want to do the hard work of figuring out historical context and uh, the, the various nuances of the divine revelation, an easy go-to is to say it's abrogated. And in the case of the, of, the, of the Quranic message, I think it's very problematic. It, it's um, uh, for, for many different reasons that we will get into, inshallah, as we go, go on, because there are many, many examples of it. Um, yes, abrogation can work in Jewish law for, for many technical reasons. It can work in Roman law. Um, But it's it's problematic um, it, when it when it plays a role in Islamic theology. I'm not sure about its role in Islamic law, uh, but in Islamic theology, yeah, it it becomes very problematic. Okay, great. <clears throat> Okay, um, this is um, from Omar. Uh, many translations translate verse 88's first part as, quote, they will be in hell forever or something similar. I remember in previous halakhas, the sheikh mentioned that some authorities held that punishment in hell was not eternal. So I was wondering if this verse actually conflicts with that idea or if it is just that some translations translate this as forever while others translate it differently. Yeah, uh, this Verse yeah. Um, yeah. The 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 no, it's not inconsistent with the Khalidina fiha. Um, the part of the part of the uh, uh, debate or part of the issue is grammar because sometimes the Quran says Khalidina fiha abada. And sometimes it says Khalidina fiha. And so when it says Khalidina fiha abada, there's an argument or a debate about what abad means. Al khulud is, is to say lasting in it. Now, if you say abada, does abada mean forever or does it mean a period of time? And if you are doing a very literal translation, Khalidina fiha abada, it would mean lasting in it for a period of time because abad is a chunk of time. Figuratively, abad has been used linguistically in a figurative way to mean forever. And so it, it, there's an intense grammatical uh, debate about the role that Abad hears, plays. Now, sometimes the Quran says Khalidina fiha and doesn't mention Abad. And 
some have tried to figure out when the Quran uses abad um, and when it doesn't. And to argue that, well, there's irrational as to why it sometimes says khalidina fiha abada and sometimes says just khalidina fiha. I have, I'm not, and um, these are pre-modern attempts, I mean, uh, medieval. I'm not persuaded by the arguments uh, that show, and, and I'm actually persuaded by a very grammatical explanation that if I am writing, um, uh, if I'm writing a book, for instance, and I say, and I mention, let's say, I say in that book, and I say, my beloved Susan, and I mention my Susan 20 times, and 10 times of those 20 times, I say my beloved Susan, and other 10 times, I just say Susan without the beloved. Grammatically, you understand that I, this is this, uh, that my, my feeling about Susan is that it's the beloved Susan, even when I don't say beloved Susan. Even if I just say Susan, the fact that I've said beloved Susan enough times allows you to generalize, well, he means his beloved Susan, even though he doesn't say it 10 out of the 20 times. Unless you notice in the text that I don't say beloved Susan when I'm upset at Susan. Then you say, well, she's his beloved when he is not upset at her and she's not his beloved when he's upset at her. But if you don't see an indication in the text that explains indifference in usage, you generalize, you'd say, well, he doesn't have to keep saying beloved Susan because it's understood from other times that he said it enough times that it's his beloved Susan. All 20 times, although he says it explicitly only 10 times. Similarly here, the Quran says Khalidina fiha abada enough times. And sometimes just Khalid says Khalidina fiha. And by rules of construction, we then say, well, because there is no reason, there's no, there, we don't, we can't see a reason to account for the linguistic difference in usage that sometimes Allah drops the abadah because it's understood. And then you, for those who said abadah means, it, 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 we take it to mean its literal meaning a period of time. So, but khalidina fiha abada, that entire expression would mean a very long time. Some, like Qadi Abdul Jabbar, had a philosophical approach to the issue. And he says, nothing can exist forever because only Allah is without beginning or without end. And he approaches it from a aqaidi tawhidi perspective. And he argues in his al-Mughni that it would, for anything to be eternal, it would then be co-equal with Allah 
which he sees as irreconcilable with Tawheed. Only Allah is without beginning or without end because we don't we can't understand eternity in the created realm. Eternity as a concept it's inaccessible to the human intellect. No matter how much the human intellect tries to understand the idea of something existing forever, it can't because it's not within the, the realm of references for human beings. And so Abdul Jabbar has a, a very interesting argument in saying, what does it mean for Allah to say, well, I've now created something that you must comprehend as being eternal, but that's not divine. And he sees that as, as, as a failure, as a, as a philosophical failure or a failure in logic. Which is a very interesting argument, and a, a tough argument because it, 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 it develops it philosophically. Um, you know, I consider it a, a, a point of sophistry to be quite uh, to be. Um, you know, <laughs> these are such long periods of time. And what does time even mean outside the realm of the sun and moon and gravity? How do we experience time when we don't have day and night and we don't have um, clocks and watches and um, you know deterioration of cells and we don't have death and we don't have, what does time mean? And it is sufficient to say that the, this is a realm that we have no frame of reference in and that's precisely what al-Iman bil-Ghayb means. That you, because, you believe because Allah said so. What do you believe in? That there will be punishment and be reward. Beyond that, I think it is really dangerous. It, you know, to do as some, we, the Quran tells us some of the hypocrites and the Israelites did and say, well, it's okay if we go to hell because it's just going to be for a short period of time and then we're, I, I think that is the absolute realm of insanity. Um, what, what's the short term? Do you want to, you know, do you want to really risk the equivalent of ten thousand years in hell and call that a short term, short period of time, and then I'm gonna pay me for my sins or fifty thousand or you know what, whatever the way human beings calculate time? Um, we're not talking, you know, about a couple of days um, or. or you know, a week or, we're talking about time as we cannot comprehend it. Um, so, 
you know, when when people when people have tried to argue with this, and I I tell them, does it really make a difference? And say, yeah, it makes a difference. I say, okay, well, define to me what forever means. You say someone will be in heaven forever, or in hell forever. Define that to me in any coherent in any way that I can comprehend. And you know, they then they start trying to define, and I start asking them questions, and before they know it, they get very frustrated, because what does forever mean? We have no frame of reference for it. There's no way we can access it. Um, so. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Um, next question. Um, Ayah 59 is often used as a proof against human evolution. And when, what is the professor's position on this? Um, you know, in law we say it's in opposite, meaning it it, it just doesn't apply. Uh, um, that Adam was created. Um, by Allah simply say now if Adam is the first human being even if we if we if we forget uh, uh, the Islamic perspective and and this is where, where I'm telling you like you really have the human mind not able to to think it there must have been, however we define a human being, there must have been a first human being at some point or another. Now, forget the, the, the religious perspective, the Islamic perspective. There must have been a first human being. Now, what is really mind-boggling, in order for this to work, it's not only there must have been a first human being, but there must have been a first man and a first woman. So even if evolutionary accident or adaptation produces a man, how did it produce a man and a woman so they can actually procreate? Um, even if we take evolutionary perspective and we say, you know, uh, Homo sapiens descended from this, from this, and this, but we always come to the first being. And what was the moment of that first being? And this is where it, it just, you know, and we can do this regression analysis back, back and back and back. Um, All that this verse is saying is that in the first, in the same way that the first human had no human father or 
had no human father. The Isa did not have a father. Now that doesn't uh, all from from a purely philosophical point of view is stating the obvious. The first human being did not come from a human father. Um, where did the first human come from? You know, there is no response. There is no answer. And the regression analysis, you know, we could keep going back and back and back. Um, and by this point, you know, I'm not, you know, evolution makes a convincing argument as to adaptation in animal kingdoms and that Allah um, Allah creates animals that adapt to their environment and that but at this point with the archaeological discoveries that have taken place I think the the evolution about homo sapiens that I learned in school no longer holds water. It, 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 the, the history of humanity, um, the history of human beings on earth has to be rewritten. The, the, the archaeological evidence itself is, is, is no longer just a simple at least that's, yeah, Allah Alam. But, that, you know, just keep in mind, this, this ayah just said, it says the obvious. You know, in the first way, you know, uh, the, the, the first, did the first bird come from a bird? Did the first dog come from a dog? You know, did the, the first, go back as, as far as you want. Did they come from the same? Okay, <clears throat> next question. Um, there is a difference of opinion as to who were and what exactly um, is the Sahaba. Can you explain in light of Surah Imran addressing the fighters in Uhud, especially among the Shia and Sunnis? Listen, the fighters in Uhud, we there is no way we can pretend that Shia and Sunnah existed when Uhud was fought. Um, uh, but in terms of of how the Shia and Sunnah see the Battle of Uhud, um, okay, let me go back and and because there is a an important part to, to this question that. There has been a tendency in Sunni Islam in particular, and not all Sunni Islam, but particularly or orientations within Sunni Islam that believed in the doctrine of tawakkuf. Tawakkuf means that we can't judge we can't judge as to the fighting that took place between the companions of the Prophet. Uh, so in other words, 
we cannot judge and we should not talk about and we should not opine about and we should have no point of view as to the, particularly Ali and Muawiyah. Now, there are many, many Sunni orientations that said clearly Ali was, supported Ali against Muawiyah and, and clearly viewed Ali as the one who was uh, the, the, the legitimate party against, and same thing for Imam al-Hussein. But with, there is a Sunni Islam, and this is the Sunni Islam that, by the way, by the, way the Salafi and Wahhabi uh, orientations emerged from that basically says we can't have an opinion as to between Ali and Muawiyah both were companions and so on. Within that orientation in Sunni Islam the way they defined Sahaba was very broad. So anyone that converted at the time of the Prophet and accompanied the Prophet even if for a single day was declared to be a Sahabi. What that meant is that within this orientation, in the same way you could not say Abu Bakr who was, you know, accompanied the Prophet many, many years, you, you, couldn't, you could not differentiate between an Abu Bakr and a Sahabi who converted, you know, in the 10th year of Islam in Medina and maybe uh, uh, dealt or, or existed with the Prophet maybe for one week. So they're all companions and we don't differentiate between them. But that extremely broad definition of a companion, because Sahabi is someone who actually accompanied you, accompanied you in some meaningful fashion. Within that definition that equated all the companions as all equally legitimate, equally credible, equally, uh, you know, and, and, and considered the opinion of a companion who uh, lived with the Prophet ﷺ for 20 years equal to the opinion of a companion that might have lived with the Prophet for one week. And, and th this, this orientation has numerous implications for law, for theology, for a lot of things because the hadith that came from and Abu Bakr was equal to a hadith that came from Abu Hurairah, was equal to a hadith that came from, you know, even a, 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 a hadith transmitted by Muawiyah would be, so all of them would be of equal value, of equal credibility, equal so on. Now, what you're alluding to is that in the Battle of Uhud, some of those that according to this school would be technically counted as companions because they converted and coexisted with the time of the Prophet, uh, have um, 
done something really wrong, uh, especially those, the, the arrow men who abandoned their posts. Um, and perhaps some, although this is a complicated issue because in Sunni sources, they go to great lengths to, to, to defend those who did not join the 70 in the campaign the next day. So in Sunni sources, they go out of their way to say, yes, this person didn't join the prophet, uh, uh, wasn't among the 70 that went out in the campaign the next day, but that's because the prophet never asked him. Or, um, well, that's because he you know, had this and this is the excuse. So in Sunni sources, you read stuff like that. Uh, that go out of their way to sort of um, say, you know, it, it, now, interestingly, when you dive into a lot of the, the Sunni sources as well, you will have these obscure references that will say such and such transmitted this tradition, but such and such scholar said he is suspect uh, because he was among those who abandoned their posts. It's like you find it buried in, in these, you know, and, and you understand from that that this person, there is a report that this person was among those who, who were the arrow men, the 10 who stayed and didn't abandon their posts were killed. They were all martyred. But then you'll find this obscure reference that, well, this person, it's reported that they were among the people who left their post. And then you will also always find some reference saying, yes, but such and such scholar said that he repented and that he, you know, Islamo, that his Islam became perfect after that, that he repented and he made up for his sin and so uh, there is no problem with accepting his his transmission. Uh, interestingly, I mean, I've read a lot of Shia sources, and um, Battle of Uhud doesn't really get it. Doesn't get into the um, um, the polemics of the polemics about the Sahaba, partly because it's very early and partly because those who were accused in the Battle of Uhud, among the Ansar especially, because most of them were Ansar, of either having abandoned their posts or having retreated in battle, have not transmitted a lot of hadith. Uh, so the role is very limited. Many of them eventually either got martyred in a later battle or um, the, or, or, or martyred in Harub al-Ridda uh, in the apostasy wars uh, during the reign of Abu Bakr. Or we don't know what happened to them. So we do have several individuals where just we simply there's no report as to their ultimate fate. Um, but 
you know, aside from Shia Sunni polemics, um, I don't think as a rational matter and as a historical matter, you cannot equate between all companions or all those who converted at the time of the Prophet are not equal. And it does make a great deal of difference for me whether I am considering the opinion of someone who knew the Prophet intimately. So we have a lot of reports where Aisha, for instance, disagrees with Abu Huraira. For me, Aisha was far closer to Abu to the Prophet than Abu Huraira. And Aisha was in a position to know, uh, especially on the types of things that Aisha disagreed with Abu Huraira on. And that matters. For me, I don't mind saying that to equate between Imam Ali and Muawiyah to me is insane. Uh, not because I believe that Muawiyah was an evil person, or, but Imam Ali was an, an ethical paradigm. He, he was a, a, a living moral example of moral excellence and moral perfection. Uh, and Imam Ali, uh, Muawiyah was a late convert to Islam who uh, might have been well-intentioned, Allahu A'lam, but is, is a, of, of a, you're, he's not a living moral example. Um, his exposure, his knowledge, his, his, uh, his legacy, what has been reported about him, um, leave alone equating between Imam Hussein and those who killed Imam Hussein. And in saying this, I might be saying things that would offend Wahhabi type Islam, but there are many Sunni Muslims who agree with the same, uh, who throughout Islamic history, who've held exactly these same views. Um, but anyway, the, the, the Shia Sunni divide is insane and, and illogical. And, um, you know, we can even disagree about the whole idea of Imam al Ghaib, which I don't believe in, um, without going to the ridiculous extremities that people go to in the Sunni Shia stuff. Um, this is a comment that uh, someone asked on YouTube. I'm not sure if this is enough to say to, for you to answer, but it says, in the first session, Dr. Abu Fadl made a comment regarding the energy and vibration of the word and intention. I would love and appreciate if you could expand on this. Do you remember what that would be regarding? I'm just going to throw it to you. It's I don't remember what context I said that, but... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it sounds like something I, I would say because um, both in the Bible and the Quran, 
creation is but a word. I mean, a word is the expression of a will, right? Now, when that word comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's unlike our words, it's an expression of human will. They have an impact. They have an impact. But it's not, of course, like the impact of Allah. When Allah's word, Allah's word has such an impact on the energy that Allah created that Allah's word creates universes. Allah's word creates animals, insects, human beings. But rest assured, I, I, I mean, and this is a, a different, now at a much, much more modest scale, uh, human words has an impact on energy as well. Uh, I forgot what what is the name of that man who did the the. Uh, he, was, he was a Japanese guy. I, I don't remember his name. He was a, a Japanese. Messages in water. Yeah, he wrote a book called Messages in in Water. Um, um, he was a Japanese scholar who was studying the the impact of words on the molecular structure of um, of water particles and 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 photographing them and and it's just rem- amazing results but we know and it, you know ancient what what a lot of the kabbalah tradition is about what a lot of the sufi tradition is about kabbalah jewish mysticism uh, what a lot of the Sufi tradition is about, what a lot of the Buddhist tradition is about, what a lot of the Hindu mysticism is about, is the effect of the word on the energy that surrounds you. And including on your own internal composition and the, the impact of words for better and for worse. And when Sufi journeys, when if if any of you have embarked on a serious Sufi journey, a, some of the most remarkable futuhat that the most supernal insights that you achieve is to see that the entire material existence around you is but wavelengths, waves threaded from words. It is as if there are vibrations that define everything in existence. But these vibrations are coded with words. Um, And then you truly understand that you are but a word. And the chair I sit on is but a word. The water I drink is but a word. 
And that's truly remarkable because then you really understand that truth is just a word. And the lack of truth is the absence of the word. And that is why the word is so important. That is why Allah puts such a heavy emphasis on bearing witness. If you do not have, if you do not articulate the word that upholds truth, that's why it's such a crime because it undermines the whole foundation not just of truth, but even of reality. It's as if it allows the wrong code to come in and thread the energies, the fabric of reality. Um, You know, subhanAllah, Allah has willed that I, I, most of my life I wear the hat of a, of a legalist, a, a, a jurist, and speak like a, like a jurist. If, if I would have, if I could have ever put that, that career aside and, uh, focused on mystical journeys instead. Uh, it's, it's a far more interesting world than the world of law. Um, endlessly fascinating. And, and the, the, the really difficult thing is that you, you have to invent a vocabulary very different from law to express the, the experiences in that universe. Um, because the, the vocabulary of law just doesn't come close to, to um, doing anything. Okay. <clears throat> I wanted to share um, thank you. That was really, really, really beautiful. Um, I wanted to share this very beautiful email that we got, um, and the writer gave me permission to share it in whole. So, um, Salam Grace. Uh, wow. I just finished Al Imran, and I am blown away. Your summaries at the end of each video always reflect my sentiments and inability to fully put into words the magnitude of what we have just received. The only thing I can compare it to is the feeling I had when I visited Al-Rauda in Masjid al-Nabawi, where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is buried, and where some say there is a piece of heaven. I remember vividly when I entered, I knew with certainty I was somewhere so important, but I also knew I wasn't able to, able in the moment to fully grasp how important it was. That's exactly how I feel about the halakhas. I can't articulate or fully comprehend how much of a gift every halakha is, 
I just know in my heart that it is. But now comes the immense sense of responsibility of what to do with this knowledge. The professor talked about the lessons in Al-Imran that outline what the moral structure of an ummah should be. He also talked about whether we, as a society, take morality seriously. Currently, I think the answer is a resounding no, and yet God has given us a clear roadmap. My question is, how can we, as individuals, effectively share the message of Al-Imran so we can help to shape a moral ummah? How can we help people in our local community and masjid collectively understand what it means to be the party of God and then internalize and act on it as a community? We hear vague calls to quote-unquote do good, but when it comes to how it manifests in our lives, the message feels disconnected and meaningless. We end up with khutbahs about why celebrating Christmas is haram and no real meaningful discourse or collective action that comes close to the aspiration of what it means to be godly people. So what can we do to help achieve the high standards set for us in Al-Imran, both individually and as an ummah, humbly and warmly? My friend. Um, you know, okay, so... It is clear that the longer I, I, I have delved in this, the, and I've, I've come to this reluctantly. I mean, I, I've, those who are close to me know, or even those who have studied me know, that I am very hesitant about um, about owning up to um, the idea that I'm presenting anything new or original or um, I, I, I like to hide in the shadow of tradition a lot. Um, the reason I say this is that it, it has become just very increasingly clear that the moral message of the Quran is missing. I, I find the way that the Quran is taught time and time and time again in so many experiences absolutely suffocating, deadening murderous um, it, it you know it's either about fear or about just feel good but as a serious as a, as a serious moral project and I I think that I was just telling Grace this before, and um, and I was also st uh, talking to Cheyenne about this. That we can't pretend that this perspective, this tafsir, is just like the 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 material that's out there. The the the, the truth is. For whatever reason, um, although I firmly believe with all my heart that 
this is the intuitive, innate meaning that the earliest Muslims without it was not it was not a, it didn't start out as a civilization uh, that wrote everything but that it held it and it's it held people held in their hearts and understood in their hearts and that's what allowed them to create the civilizational project that they created that what inspired everything from islamic art to islamic architecture to islamic music to you know all the human humanistic endeavors that they've created but the sad reality is is that it it is you, you won't find it in the in the in the books of tradition it's not laid out in that fashion so owning up to the fact that this is a effectively a, a school of thought and it's an interpretation of the Quran and the the proof is in the realization. In other words, I submit that once you listen to this tafsir and you go back and read this the surah, you will say the meaning is obvious. You yourself will say, yeah, this is so obvious. How could it be anything else? That's, I think, the power of this tafsir. Now, I have to tell you, I have very limited hope that it will be accepted, widely accepted during my lifetime. The reason is, unfortunately, Muslims are caught up on personality issues. Every Muslim wants to be the great imam, the great scholar. We have every Muslim doesn't want to, you know, want to. Why would he know anything that I don't know already? Or why would Allah give him the meaning? Uh, and the problems of jealousy and personality pettiness of personality types, it will stand as a great barrier. That obstacle, inshallah, will be removed or greatly removed or moved to a large extent when I die. Then people don't no longer are threatened by the whole jealousy issue and the whole, well, why would Allah allow him to understand, uh, well, oh, you know, either that or, well, there's nothing new here. Everything he said, I knew already, you know, that type of stuff. Unfortunately, that's the way Muslims deal with each other, sadly. Um, the most important thing before dissemination, in other words, before we are able to, to, to actually educate people, to reconnect them with the message of the Quran is preservation. The biggest threat is after all this effort is that this tafsir would be lost. Uh, people are not going to sit and listen to um, all these halakas. Um, 
look at our numbers, very limited. You know, if I presented 20-minute segments or 20-minute things that have graphs and diagrams and arrows and colors, people would, you know, I would get hundreds of views and all types of students. This is, this is hardcore. So the first serious obligation and duty is preservation to publish a tafsir. Now, why publish a tafsir? Because when the author, the founder is dead, the material is published, then comes the stage where Allah can send a few bright students who read the material and watch the halakas and internalize it and add to it their own original insights, their own brilliance, and start spreading the message by writing articles, writing books, giving lectures, giving seminars, and what started out right now at the margin could become the standard perspective where you know everyone knows becomes sort of like just standard. It doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements and differences of opinions and debates and all of that is healthy. But if this is the truth, Allah will, uh, will, will protect it, will sustain it, will allow it to survive, and will allow it to wither away all criticisms and all challenges and so on. And it, it would be long after I'm gone and alhamdulillah, but it is in Allah's hands. But our first obligation is preservation. Second obligation, if there is any way that we can create a, a, a way, a, an institution a, for people to, to support students, to support young scholars, to study this material and master it and fund them in teaching this material, then we would have done the Muslim Ummah a huge service. Listen, we used to do it in, in, in bygone days in the Awqaf, but nowadays, look at how many seminaries in, among the Jewish, um, um, among uh, Jewish communities, how many rabbinical schools dedicated to the thought of this rabbi or that rabbi or, and so on. And students enlist, enroll in these rabbinic schools to, and within the Jewish tradition, you know the students of this rabbinic school, the students of this rabbinic school, the students of that rabbinic school, and this creates a, a, a richness of Jewishness. 
a richness that translates into thriving at so many levels. Same, by the way, in, in, in so many levels of, of uh, I mean, just look up how many fellowships and scholarships exist if you want to study, you know, many of the very many different uh, varieties of, of Christian sects that exist. Um, we can't, I mean, other than giving you the, the standard answer of, well, just be a godly person and live by example and lead by example. Okay, that's obvious. You know, just study the stuff here, try to be a Rabbani and try to be a good moral example. But if you want a concrete advice as to how we can start to decolonize and reclaim our Islam, preserve this tafsir, step number one. Step number two, facilitate the means for people to study and specialize in this tafsir so they can add to it because if anything that remains static dies. So it must be brilliant students who can add, who can contribute original insight, um, and who can teach it and disseminate it. Um, that's my answer. That's the honest truth. But we can't pretend that it's, uh, or, you know, it, it, we'll find the same material <clears throat> Oh, it's it all exists somewhere else. It doesn't. Sadly, it doesn't. I mean, I used to even lie to my own family about this and tell them, "Oh, nothing I say is original. It all exists somewhere else." And then I've just, uh, as as my time on this earth draws ever closer uh, to an end, I just can't keep up the. No, a lot of hard work went into this. A lot of a lot of begging and pleading with Allah for first it just personal I wanted answers for myself and no one else. Um, initially But I, I think if you listen and then you read, you go back and you read the Sur, you'll see that everything I said is obvious. Yes, it took a great deal of scholarship to see the obvious. That's the remarkable thing. A, a great deal of research to see what has always been there, right? right in the text. Alhamdulillah, I, I think that is the perfect place to finish. Um, you know, we, um, several things that really jumped out in this session, which, you know, I, I, 
I'm so grateful that I feel like oftentimes God guides our, our sessions even to, you know, like talk about questions in the right, in a certain way, but it was so revealing even in the beginning as you were describing your engagement, how many hours you spent, you know, praying in the midst of your research and how you planned out your research and you thought about all of the different questions. And, you know, it became obvious that you know, when you talk about how how special this tefsir is, and I know like when when we hear it and we experience it and we feel the truth and the, the, the intuition, the, the intuitive nature of this, um, like it resonates, at least, you know, in my soul it resonates as truth. And I've always had that experience from the beginning when I first, before I even knew you and I heard your first lectures on women jurists in Islamic history, it's like that feeling of truth just penetrates and it like cuts through darkness like a thunderbolt of light and I think that you know it's undeniable um, I mean it's hard for you to say you know this is what you believe is to be truth but as someone who's receiving it and hearing it and understanding everything that you put in it in order to get to this point um, you know it's it's so clear it's it's so obvious and I think that whether we see the impact of it, you know, in our lifetime or not, um, it's undeniable that this is not something that any individual could do without the curiosity, the dedication, the hard work, the prayer. Um, it, you know, this is this is serious. As you said, it's hardcore. It's really in depth and something that people cannot achieve if they're not scholarly at a very high caliber so um thank you so much i mean thank you is not even enough i mean there are just no words to express the gratitude and you know honestly to you know we have to be grateful to god because we are experiencing it at this moment in time we happen to be alive we happen to be here in this circumstance receiving it we happen to be to care and want to be here and um and so it's like this email said, you know, it, like you can't quite understand or feel the, you can't fully comprehend, but you just know that it's extremely special. Um, and so I pray that Allah will help us, you know, bear this responsibility and, and do what we need to do. This was extremely valuable to know about preservation and then trying to, to create institutions to, dem to disseminate it. Um, you know, I guess I want to just make a personal appeal to people who, you know, you've been with, you guys have been with us this long and you see the specialness of this. You know, we obviously want to continue this work and preserving it. So um, anything that you can do to share with others who you think might be open, you know, we, the specialness of this methodology, I, I really hope and pray that even after we finish the tefsir, we can move on to the sira because this is something that is an obvious continuation of Project Illumin. It's one thing to get into the, the depth of the Quran through, you know, the the, the research and the, the prayer. That is exactly what the Sheikh has done in understanding also the life of the Prophet and uncovering the equivalent of this type of research about our Prophet. and considering where how people feel and you know what as the, the professor as the sheikh said today people are not in love with the prophet anymore they don't even understand why they sh why we should care about the prophet i would love to see this project continue inshallah after the tafsir into 
the CIRA, and I'm actually going to start working on the next program, Phase 2, Project of Women. So just to put that out there, inshallah, I pray that, you know, we will get more momentum, more people to continue on after this, inshallah. But um, thank you again for finishing out this beautiful year, this beautiful tafsir so far with this incredible Surah Imran. And I cannot wait to see where we start next year, 2022, inshallah. <laughs> so... We will see you, inshallah, on um, Saturday next year <laughs> for our next surah. And I, um, alhamdulillah, thank you for being with us. Uh, have a wonderful um, rest of the year. Happy New Year. Inshallah, we'll see you then. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>